namo bhagavate vasudevaya Om namo bhagavate vasudevaya Om namo bhagavate vasudevaya Om hagyanatimirandasya gananjana shalakaya chakshur anmilitam yena tasmai shri gurave namaha Shri Chaitanya Manobishtam Shtapitam Yena Bhutale Swayam Rupakadamayam Dadati Swapadantikam Vandehang Shri Guru Shri Utapadakamalam Shri Gurun Vaishnavamscha Shri Rupam Sagrajatam Sahagana Raghunatan Vitam Tam Sajivam Sadvaitam Savadhunam Parijana Sahitam Krishna Chaitanya Devam Shri Radha Krishna Padan Sahagana Lalita Shri Vishakan Vitamscha He Krishna Karuna Sindho Dina Bandho Jagatpate Gopesha Gopika Kanta Radha Kanta Namostute Dapta Kanchana Gorangi Radhe Vrindavan Eshvari Vrishabhanu Sute Devi Pranamami Hari Priye Vanchakalpa Tarubhyascha Kripa Sindhu Bia Evacha Patitanam Pabhanebhyo Vaishnavebhyo Namo Namaha Shri Krishna Chaitanya Prabhu Nitahananda Shri Advaita Gadadhara Shri Vasadi Gaur Bhakta Vrinda Hare Krishna Hare Krishna 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 Hare 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 Rama Hare Rama 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 Hare 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 Krishna Hare Krishna 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 Hare 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 Rama Hare Rama 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 Hare Hare Okay, so from what I understand we are on Canto 1, Chapter 11, Text 22. Is that correct? Someone who's been here and followed along. I hope it's right. That's right. I got it right. Okay, good. Okay. Yeah. No, unfortunately. I didn't really prepare for that. I didn't think about that. I, I just looked at the verse and prepared. Um, if I started talking about Bhakti Vinod, I would just forget about the verse altogether. But I, I don't have enough off the top of my mind to be able to put together a reasonable class, so I'll uh, defer. I should have thought about that, but it didn't strike my head. And I just looked at the schedule and saw what verse there was, and even forgot all about the fact that it was Bhakti Vinod Thakur's. What is it, his appearance or disappearance? It's appearance? Or? 
appearance, okay. Prabhavi Vadana Slesha Prabhavadana Slesha Karasparsha Smikekshanai Karasparsha Smitekshanai Ashvasya chasva peke bhyo. Ashvasya chasva peke bhyo. Ashvasya Prabhabi Vadana Slesha Prabhabi Vadana Slesha Karasparsha Smikekshanai Ashvasya Chasva Pake Bhyo Paraischa bhimatair vibhu. Prabhavivadana slesha. Karasparsha smitekshanai. Ashvasya chashvapa kebhyo. Varaischa bhimatair vibhu. Pravabhivadana slesha. Karasparsha smitekshanai. Vasya chava pake bhyo. Varais chabi matair vibhu. Ladies, anyone? Prabhavivadana slesha. Karasparsha smitekshanai. Ashvasya chashva pake bhyo. Varais chabhi matair vibhu. Prabhava bhadina slesha. Karasparsha smitekshanai. Ashvasya chashvi pake bhyo. Varais chabhi matair vibhu. Prabhava. By bowing his head. Abhivadana. By greeting with words. 
Asleshu. Embracing. Karaspar Shap. Shaking hands. Smita Ikshunahai. By a glancing smile. Ashvasya. By encouragement. Cha. And. Ashvapake Bihap. Down to the lowest rank of the dog eaters. Varai. By benedictions. Cha. Also. Abhimatahi. As desired by. Vibhu. The Almighty. So the translation reads, the Almighty Lord greeted everyone present by bowing his head, exchanging greetings, embracing, shaking hands, looking and smiling, giving assurances, awarding benedictions even to the lowest in rank. So I say and you all, please repeat, the Almighty Lord greeted everyone. By, I'm sorry, present by bowing his head, exchanging greetings, Embracing, Embracing, shaking hands, shaking hands looking, and smiling, looking and smiling, giving assurances, giving assurances and awarding benedictions, benedictions, even to the lowest in rank. All right, so here's the purport. To receive the Lord Sri Krishna, there were all grades of population, beginning from Vasudev, Ugrasena, and Gargamuni, the father, grandfather, and teacher down to the prostitutes and chandalas who are accustomed to eat dogs. And every one of them was properly greeted by the Lord in terms of rank and position. As pure living entities, all are separate parts and parcels of the Lord and thus no one is alien by his eternal relation. Such pure living entities are graded differently in terms of contamination of the modes of material nature. But the Lord is equally affectionate to all his parts and parcels, despite material gradation. He descends only to recall these materialistic living beings back to his kingdom. And intelligent persons take advantage of this facility offered by the personality of Godhead to all living beings. No one is rejected by the Lord from the kingdom of God. And it remains with the living being to accept this or not. Now there's a tongue twister verse. That one's rough. And I practiced it too, but it didn't help. <laughs> All right. So um, the Almighty Lord greeted everyone present by bowing his head exchanging greetings, embracing, shaking hands, looking and smiling, giving assurances and awarding benedictions even to the lowest in rank. So it's um, one of those amazing things that we see that um, Krishna walks on this planet and he behaves like one of us, which is kind of unusual. You would think that he would come and there would be legions of servants and there he'd be surrounded by 
uh, enormous opulence and you couldn't get anywhere near him. <clears throat> but actually that's not the way the Supreme Lord does things. When he comes to the material world, he appears to engage in activities just like any other living being. And here it makes the amazing uh, connection that he greeted everybody. So he's greeting his father, Vasudev. He's greeting his grandfather, Ugrasena. Of course, that's on his mother's side. Ugrasena is the father, I believe, or connected in somehow to uh, um, Devaki. And Gargamuni, the teacher. And then it's talking about all the way down to chandalas and prostitutes. And as we uh, mentioned last week, that uh, along with explaining all the people who came out to see the Lord, all these illustrious personalities, we also hear that the prostitutes came to get a look at the Lord. And it mentions that they were devotees. <laughs> so, of course, that was an interesting discussion we had last week. I don't want to repeat it again this week, but at any rate. Uh, the idea here is that no one is not connected to the Supreme Lord. They may acknowledge the connection or they may not. And of course, as Prabhupada says here, people are on various grades or levels of contamination. So some people are very contaminated and some are not so much contaminated. So naturally, those who are less contaminated can have more of a reciprocation with the Lord. And the Lord followed social protocol, even though who can be more illustrious than the Lord? But he offered his obeisances to people like his father and people like Gargamuni because he was playing the role of a human. He was not pulling his I am God at every moment concept. In fact, generally he doesn't do that because that's an impediment to intimate relations. So we see that in Gaudiya Vaishnav theology, the relationship of awe and reverence and the relationship of intimacy, they can't exist <coughs> at the same time. So you have to give, give up one and hold to the other. So he prefers that the devotees, the intimate devotees, they give up the on-reverence and hold to the intimacy rather than giving up the intimacy and holding to the on-reverence. It's interesting that in one sense, there were so many people connected to Krishna, including Duryodhana. When we think about the fact that Balaram was a friend of Duryodhana, Duryodhana always felt that Balaram was his friend. And so even Duryodhana had a connection because actually what's the difference between Krishna and Balaram? But because Balaram is in a different mood than Krishna, Krishna could get next even to Duryodhana in the form of his brother Balaram. 
So when the Lord descends, he has his Lelic pastimes or his various dalliances or whatever you want to call them, his various interactions with his devotees for the sake of the interaction, for the sake of exchanging emotions and gestures of love. And at the same time, he has his what I call salvific uh, aspects of his pastimes, where he attracts the wayward living entities who have ignored him so long. He somehow sparks that attraction for them to decide to give up their pointless wandering in the material world and go back home, back to Godhead. So, um, in a verse or two, Prabhupada will discuss the fact that um, many could see Krishna when he was here, especially those who were in Dwarkapuri, because in Dwarkapuri, Krishna walked there quite often, and people could get the audience or the darshan of Krishna quite easily. But what do we do now? And now, of course, we have the Archavigraha, which is what uh, Prabhupada explains. The Archavigraha, which is a form of the Supreme in what appears to be material substance. So it's said in the Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu 1.2.234, Atashi Krishna Namadi Nabavet Grahyam Indriyai, Sevan Mukhi Hijivado Swayameva Spradhyada, that one cannot understand the Supreme Lord by the blunt material senses. One cannot understand the Supreme Lord by the blunt material senses. However, one can understand him beginning with the tongue, and that is by chanting and by taking Krishna Prasad. So we can understand the Supreme Lord through the agency of the tongue. And nevertheless, the Supreme Lord takes this archavigraha form, which for all the world appears to be made of material substance. But of course, Krishna is not material. So how do we put all this together? Is it some kind of fancy-dancy paradox or contradiction? Everything is ultimately Krishna's energy including the so-called material energy. But the so-called material energy is also called Daivi Prakriti in Bhagavad Gita by Krishna. So it's his divine energy too. It just depends on the attitude or the vision of the person looking. So if someone walks in here and they have absolutely no faith in God, they will see a marble statue. If someone walks in here and they have understood Gaudiya Vaishnav theology and are laboring at purifying themselves, they will see Radha and Krishna, at least to some extent or another. But 
sometimes they can reveal themselves to anyone. So uh, we see that the Archa Vigraha is specific. The Archa Vigraha is a chance for those who are still Atashi, Krishna, Namani, Nabhavet, Grayam, Indriyai. Their senses are not purified yet. These senses are not at the stage where we can appreciate Krishna with our senses. We have blunt material senses, but we also have subtle senses and we also have spiritual senses. When we are fully purified, we see not through the blunt material senses, but through directly through our spiritual senses. And the one object that our spiritual senses are totally designed to appreciate and behold, that one object is, of course, the Supreme Personality of Godhead. That's the one thing that our spiritual senses are specifically designed to perceive. But right now, since we are not using our spiritual senses, we are funneling them through the subtle senses into the gross senses. And this can be understood the same way a teenager plays a virtual reality game on a computer. The teenager has senses, but where are they focused on? They're focused on a computer screen. He's not seeing the world around him, he's seeing the computer screen. And that world is different from the world around him. So his actual senses are plugged into the computer and he's seeing what the computer is manifesting through CGI. <laughs> and he's using his hands to manipulate some virtual reality that's going on in the computer. And his mom says, it's time to eat. But he doesn't even hear her. He's lost in the computer game. He's playing whatever they play these days. Uh, World of Warcraft. Or <laughs> There's all these kind of games that I hear about, you know. Uh, and... Uh, um, People lose whole days in playing these games. And uh, their whole reality, the real reality fades. And their focus becomes the computer screen. And that is reality. Exactly that's how we are <coughs> right now. We have faded out the real reality of Krishna and the gopis and service and the spiritual world. And we're focused on a artificial reality. And Krishna consciousness will finally get us to the point where we'll look away from the computer screen and we'll see that the computer screen is there still, but we'll change our perspective and we'll be actually looking around us at the real world, not just the computer screen. So the Archa Vigraha is designed <coughs> to help awaken us. And as we were saying last week, everything about the Supreme Lord is attractive, especially, you know, just look. You've got all these colors and beads and embroidery and flowers and um, every kind of thing. And it's all really, really attractive. I mean, where do you see things like this? You don't, even in Macy's. <laughs> 
<laughs> or, <clears throat> or whatever, you know. I remember in Korea there was a whole uh, group of stores called the Lati stores. <laughs> they were like the Korean version of Macy's. And uh, they would have these big to-dos, where, just like Macy's. They would dress up the window in some strange kind of uh, theme. And they would have these like profound things, you know, printed on the window and they would have mannequins acting something out. You know, it was designed to attract attention. And uh, they would always have these slogans that were just non sequiturs, you know, and because I don't know who designed them, but the one that <laughs> sticks in my mind is love and thank. It's all you can do. <laughs> they had these big words on the front of their latte store for about oh, two weeks. Love and thank. It's all you can do. And I thought, hmm. <laughs> it's almost English. <laughs> it, it, it's one of those things that the words all make sense, but <laughs> in, the, in the way that they're put together, they don't make sense. <laughs> but at any rate, uh, Krishna is trying to awaken that. And what I find sometimes very sad is the battle against Krishna's form, which is everywhere. Um, you have atheists that don't even believe that there is a God of any kind, whether he's formed or formless. They just don't believe at all. And then you have mostly the major religions don't agree that the Supreme Lord has any kind of form. And uh, that's kind of a, a sad thing when you think about it. Because how can they actually find themselves in love with God if he doesn't look like anything? You know, or he looks like an old guy with a big white robe and a scratchy, ugly beard, you know. Um, we just are not very attracted to this kind of thing. And where did it come from, really? Uh, it's an interesting historical thing to follow. Um, generally, we see that the Abrahamic religions, uh, particularly, <laughs> Um, Judaism, they reject the form of the Lord. And this comes from the uh, Tetragrammaton, the uh, Ten Commandments. So uh, it depends on how they're listed. They're listed differently in different places. But uh, it's either the first or the third commandment. This is, I am the Lord thy God, and I brought thee out of the bondage of Egypt. And <clears throat> I am a jealous God. Thou shalt make no graven images before me, and I shall, thou shalt not bow down and worship them, making any image unto anything that flies in the sky or swims in the waters or lives in the waters beneath the earth. For I am a jealous God, and I punish those who do not keep my commandments to the thousandth generation, but those who love and serve me, I reward them. So this is kind of my paraphrasing of the 
commandment. And so what's key here is this idea one should not make a graven image. So to many people, that means any image. All images must be graven images. And so this is why when you walk into a synagogue anywhere in the Jewish tradition, you will never see any picture of God in there. Um, Sometimes you may see a burning bush. Actually, right out there as you walk in, you might have noticed that little bit of stained glass that's in our uh, window that goes out on the street onto Skimmerhorn. That is a burning bush. This was once a synagogue, this place that we're sitting in at this moment in time, this temple at one time was a synagogue. And so they put that there and their conception of God is a burning bush. It's kind of metaphorical. I mean, it's hard to get fired up about falling in love with a burning bush. I mean, yeah, it's kind of interesting at night, but uh, there's not much you can do with that. Um, And they actually think that if one makes any form, this form must be wrong. It must be satanic or whatever, that uh, one is an idolater. So they're a little more mellow about it these years than they were in ancient times. Then you have this contrast between Semitic culture or the Judaism and the rest of the culture, like for instance, the uh, Arabic or the um, uh, Egyptian culture, which is full of demigods. So they were the other side of the coin. They had all kinds of things. In the Mesopotamian culture, they had zillions of weird demigods and things that aren't demigods, apparently. You know, Inki and Inlil and all all these uh, strange pantheon. Um, But um, eventually, the idea that there was only one God makes them all under one umbrella at least the uh, ones who believe, like the uh, Semitic um, peoples did, that there is only one God and he has no form. And this is a tragedy because actually, if you look at the Bible, you'll see that there are references to the hand of God, the voice of God, And, you know, it says that uh, in places, you know, that there was uh, the right hand of God. So if he's got a right hand, probably he's got a left one, too. And um, there's probably the rest of the body somewhere. And it comes down to Moses Maimonides, who um, was certain that God must not have a form. And his reasoning was simple enough, though it was wrong, His reasoning was that um, if God was in one place, then that means he would be limited. Therefore, he could not be God. Because if God was standing in the room right in front of us right now, he would not be in the next room, and therefore he would be limited. I mean, this shows that they don't understand this idea of the three aspects of the Supreme Vedanti, Tat Tattva Vedas, Tattva Vyajganam, Advayam, Brahmati, Paramatmati, Bhagavanati, Shabjate. So 
there are three features, the Brahman, the Paramatma, and the Bhagawan. So he is everywhere, but he can be in one place also. There's nothing to stop the Supreme Lord from being everywhere and at the same time in one place. He's just everywhere in his Brahman feature, and he's in one place in his Bhagawan feature, that's all. And he's in everybody's heart in yet another feature, the Paramatma feature. So at the time of Moses Maimonides, there was another Jewish writer and thinker named um, Abraham Ben David of Poskier, who was at odds with Moses Maimonides' understanding. And he claimed that when the Bible says the Supreme Lord has a form, it literally means he has a form. So he was on the right track. But somehow history remembers Moses Maimonides and not Abraham ben David of Pasquier. Somehow he was lost to obscurity. So since, I don't know when this was around, I think the 10th, 11th century or something like that, uh, Judaism has been solidly of the opinion that God must have no form. When we uh, look at the Arabic culture, at one time they had all kinds of forms. Arabic culture was full of various deities or whatever they were. Uh, and in the Fertile Crescent, in Mesopotamia, in those areas, and even in Syria and other places, uh, these various cities in the desert, each one had a city deity that was supposed to protect that city. And so everywhere there were all these different beings being worshipped. And of course, Muhammad, he went, his famous story was that he went to the Kaaba and there he broke all these various uh, forms that were there. Except for it's said that there was a form of Mary and the uh, child Jesus which he left alone. But all the other forms he broke. <clears throat> and this is where the Arabic culture and the Islamic tradition gets the idea that God must not have a form, that if Muhammad broke all these forms, all these forms must have been wrong. Of course, they also have a uh, reading of this uh, third or first commandment in the same way to reject the form of the Lord. It's interesting that if we go into Egyptian tradition, there was a king called uh, Akhenaten. And uh, he was an interesting Egyptian king who also came up with this idea that there was one God. And he, wanted, he got rid of all the uh, traditional Egyptian deities of various kinds and uh, <clears throat> had them chiseled away in his kingdom. But he met with enormous resistance and eventually I think he came to a bad end. And uh, um, if we go a little bit later in times, we come across in Christianity, in the first um, five or six centuries of Christianity, um, it was not clear exactly what the deal was. 
everyone knew Jesus had a form. And in general, in Christianity, they accepted the idea that Jesus was God, and therefore this was his form. A form of God was equal to the form of Jesus. And you had Michelangelo painting this picture of God touching the first man on the Sistine Chapel roof, etc. So uh, this idea was there. Um, but in the Byzantine Empire, um, around the early 8th century, 724 or somewhere like that, uh, there was a, a emperor and his name was Leo III. And Leo III became convinced that what had happened was that Christianity had gone off the rails by having these pictures that people were worshiping. You can't worship a picture, you have to worship the real thing. So picture is misleading you in some kind of way. And he said, these Muslims that are right next to us, they are, seems to be doing well. And we're getting pushed away. So God must be favoring them. And I think the reason God's favoring them and not favoring us is because they don't believe in the form. So <clears throat> Leo, began to banish all forms of uh, iconography, you know, whether it was a statue, whether it was a crucifix, whether it was a painting, he banned them all and uh, asked that everybody remove them from the kingdom. And uh, he started this whole thing and uh, there were some that didn't agree with him and they hid away some of the more uh, nicely done ancient uh, paintings and sculptures and things like that. They were part of their worship for literally hundreds of years. Here this king is saying, you know, get rid of it all because we're displeasing God. We're breaking the first commandment. We are worshiping graven images. So in their thinking, even an image of so-called God was wrong to worship. One just had to worship the real thing, which of course has no form. <laughs> so any rate, we can see how this went kind of off the rails. So Leo was uh, very, very strong. It's also said that there was some kind of underground volcano that went off about that time and created a big tsunami and people died. So he thought this again was clear, clear proof that God was not happy. And the reason God was not happy was people were worshiping these images. That was what was wrong. We just get rid of all the images. God will be cool with us again and we'll start doing much better. So that was Leo III's idea. His son, Constantine V, was about the same as his father. He pursued the same line of thinking. Uh, and although Leo didn't actually get much accomplished. His son got a lot accomplished. His son did a lot for the uh, Byzantine Empire. However, he's remembered today with hatred because he was really, really a strong iconoclast. And people who wouldn't shape up and come around to the idea of getting rid of the image, he got rid of them. And so this was pretty bad. And uh, uh, <coughs> Uh, Constantine V eventually died 
And uh, he had a son, but his son was young and his wife, Irene, took over. And uh, it turns out that um, she thought the idea of having forms to worship was not such a bad thing. And so she said, you know, I don't know why everybody's so down on worshiping these forms. Let's bring them all back. And there were a lot of people said, yay, let's do it. And they, they brought them out of hiding and all this kind of stuff. And so eventually um, she wanted to turn it all around. So she wanted to conduct a second council. Uh, originally, Constantine V had conducted a council where everyone got together and made a decree that these things were definitely not to be done. We should never worship these forms or pictures or whatever it is. And that was the, um, his area or him area or something like that. I forget which, some city like that. So Irene convened a council in Constantinople, but there were still many people who were uh, of the same mentality as Constantine, uh, her husband, and they created a big uh, military problem, and so they had to stop the council. They couldn't continue. And later, she convened it a little bit later in another city, in Nicaea, and this time they passed a whole, they got a whole bunch of bishops and people who were high up in the church. And they said, yes, by scriptures, we're sure that it's not a wrong thing to worship these various uh, forms. And however, when her son grew up, again, he was like Leo IV or something. This, this gets mind blowing to remember all these crazy names. And everybody's being named the same thing. They're just a different number, you know. <laughs> So it's really hard to keep track of it. But at any rate, her son went back to the way that uh, the previous group had been and got rid of the, the icons again a second time, and they went underground. And then uh, again, when he died, his wife was again the same way, and she thought, let's bring them back. And, uh, and this time, this time, uh, they really got everybody together and they made a final decree that there's nothing wrong with worshiping icons. That they are not the Supreme Lord, but they remind us of the Supreme Lord and what's really wrong with that. People have always done that. Uh, the, um, this date is still known in the Eastern Orthodox tradition as the triumph of um, orthodoxy. So finally, it was okay. Of course, this didn't happen at all in Rome or in the other, in the uh, Western Roman Empire, because in the Western Roman Empire, they always thought that worshiping all these uh, various forms and everything was, there was nothing wrong with it. In fact, if you go in the Catholic Church, it's got all kinds of paintings of saints and the Supreme Lord and, and Jesus, and it's got paintings of his passion on the cross and all these kind of things. So uh, they've always been of that mentality. Now we fast forward a few more years into the Protestant Reformation. And you have, <clears throat> I always thought it was all the Protestants, but evidently it was only the northern Protestants, the Hulrich uh, uh, Zwingli and John Calvin, who were really of the same idea 
as the Judaic tradition and the Islamic tradition, that there should be no images. However, even Martin Luther felt that images were good because they helped. He said, if I try to visualize Jesus in my mind, no one will argue with that. But if I try to see that same image outside in a painting, somebody will tell me that's wrong, which is an interesting argument. <coughs> so um, these various uh, things have been back and forth in our world for a long time. So it's not surprising when people come into the temple room and they see Radha Binda, they may feel uneasy about that. They've been taught that this is against the first commandment. They've been taught that this is some kind of idolatry. But they have no idea what it means to be an idolater. An idolater is someone who worships something that's not God in place of worshiping God. That's what idolatry is. And of course, since they have no real idea or notion of what God's actual form is, then what they actually think is um, a puff of smoke. They, they don't have anything to measure anything against. So this is what we're up against sometimes. And this is what's actually sad that um, most religions can't distinguish between um, polytheism, which accepts many gods, and henotheism, which is what we are technically, where there are many demigods, but they are not seen on the same level as the one supreme god. That's henotheism. Now, monotheism is the idea that one rejects all other beings and only one god, which it doesn't acknowledge that there are demigods. We acknowledge that they exist, we just don't worship them because we know that by worshiping the Supreme, we've worshiped all of them as well. We don't need to worship them individually. Uh, so at any rate, that's a, a brief stroll through history and why our world is the way it is, why um, certain people uh, find it hard to accept the form of God if they come from uh, an Islam, Islamic tradition, they accept, they find it hard to accept for one reason. If they come from a Judaic tradition, they find it hard to accept for another reason. <coughs> if they come from certain kinds of Protestant traditions, they also find it hard to accept um, in a similar way as the uh, Judaic tradition finds it hard to accept. But the Supreme Lord has a form, and if we learn what his form is, we can become eventually attracted to it. That's the uh, whole idea. Krishna actually comes not only to perform his own pastimes for his own pastimes' sake, but also to attract us back home, back to Godhead. And the whole thing makes sense, whereas all these other positions make no sense if you try to unravel them or you try to think of their logical consequences. You run up into dead ends every, in every side. All right, so I want to stop. And if there are any questions or comments, we can take a few. Yeah.
We don't have any direct measurements. <laughs> well, here's an interesting thing to ponder. <laughs> I don't know if I can answer the question directly, but I'll answer it indirectly. Here's an interesting thing to ponder that in various deity worship, they have some prescriptions for how Krishna must be depicted. Of course, we see that if you go down a whole row of um, you know, uh, Murti Wallace in India, you'll see every kind of form possible, really. But when Narada Muni wanted to see Krishna, he had heard that in Dwarkapuri, that Krishna had 16,108 palaces. In each palace, he had a separate queen. And in each palace, Krishna was separately manifesting to each queen. And one of the things that Narada Muni noticed was that Krishna wasn't exactly identical <laughs> in each palace. He was customized <laughs> in a particular way for a particular queen. So um, that's an interesting thing. So we could see that there's some leeway there uh, and it can still be Krishna. Um, more than that, I can't say, but I just thought that I would uh, give you <laughs> that one bit. I don't know if that helps or not, but. <laughs> uh, you had a question. What's that? Henotheism and polytheism. Yeah, henotheism means the worship of many gods knowing that one is supreme among them, whereas monotheism means actually excluding anything but one god. And that's the technical definition. Of course, many times we call ourselves monotheistic. In general uh, language, unless you're dealing in a scholarly setting, people won't make these subtle distinctions, but actually that's the difference. Right. So, must be also some quotes uh, that come from the Bible that support this? Uh, that what? Quotes from the Bible that support the worship of the Yeah. Well, one thing that you can quote that man is made in the image of God. I mean, I don't know how much stronger evidence you need than that, you know, that uh, if we are made in the image of God, it suggests that God must have an image, huh? <laughs> that if uh, we are made in his image, uh, if we look like something, that means he looks like something. And the idea is that he's not patterned after us as modern atheists think, this anthropomorphic view, but it's the other way around. We're patterned after him. So uh, if we have two arms and a leg and a head, then it seems reasonable to think that God must too. Uh, 
And I don't know why Christian scholars, and, and that's, you know, that's not just New Testament, that's Old Testament, so the Jews should accept that as well, you know. And you can back them up on that, that question and say, well, your own scriptures say that. If uh, man is made in the image of God, then if we have an image or a form, that suggests that God must as well, doesn't it? It's hard to argue with that, yeah. Generally, the response I've seen, though, is that we accept that God has form. It's not possible for us to, to imagine it or to depict it. Right. It's only something when we come face to face, when uh, we leave this world and we are resurrected. Right, right. And so right. Then we can, we'll have the power to, to see. But when we try to Right, right. But we don't because right. we have no description. Okay. That's the problem. There's no descriptions. up there. He's so far up there that he's completely out of sight and we're just focused on mundane material junk and we don't care. <laughs> it's kind of the perverse version of Atashi Krishnamurti. <laughs> it's kind of recognizing that we can't get to God with the blunt material senses so we won't even pretend to try. We'll just stay down here and enjoy our material stuff and we'll talk about God every once in a while and he should be happy with that. That's, that's the uh, unfortunate, uh, you know, uh, actual color, corollary of, of that viewpoint, you know. It's one of those viewpoints that seems pious, but actually is a wolf in sheep's clothing, really. It just kind of puts us in the wrong direction. Though it's very hard to dissuade people away from attitudes like that because people are not rational about what they think and uh, they just accept things and if they come from a particular community they're going to stay with what they know uh, regardless of anything for the most part but if you find people a little pliable then you might be able to uh, move them a little bit intellectually that's the, in general that's why religion is so weak in the <coughs> in the world today is because no one is actually attracted by God. So what's the alternative to being attracted by God? You must be attracted to the material world. And if you're attracted to the material world, your religious sentiment is never going to rise to any significant level. You're just going to be a dilettante or a neophyte and you'll never really get to the stage where you really want to break the bonds of material connection. You just think, well, God wants me to enjoy, so let me enjoy, and maybe I'll go to heaven, and there um, angels will do things for me, and I'll have a good time. 
All right, so I don't want to keep everyone over, so thank you all very much for your kind attention. All glories to Shishi Radha Govinda Dev, all glories to the Vaishnava devotees, Hare Krishna.